This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, our town hall with the chair of the House New Democrat Coalition, Congresswoman Susan Del Bene. She represents Washington's first congressional district, and she also currently serves as the vice chair on the House Ways and Means Committee and the Select Revenue Measures and Trade Subcommittees. She joins us for a talk about COVID relief, Biden's infrastructure plan, the Thrive Agenda, the For the People Act, and so much more. Stay with us. Thanks to everybody for joining us today on this Saturday. And Congresswoman Delbeni, such an honor to have you with us again. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. And I kind of want to just jump right in and get into our discussion because, as we know, there's so much ground to cover. So much has happened in these first 80 days. I want to talk about the new Democrat coalition's four-point plan for the first 100 days. But, you know, just to frame this, I would love to ask you first, as the chair of the NDC, What does it mean in your mind to be a a new Democrat, a moderate in the era of Biden? So um, the new Democrat coalition is made up of 94 Democratic members of the House of Representatives. Um, We have always been very focused on making sure that things work, um, that we are forward looking, understanding that the world is changing and that we're addressing issues that come with that change. We're primarily folks who represent purple districts across the country. The new Dems are the reason we have the majority. Um, And so a lot of those purple districts that can be urban, but also suburban and rural. And and so with the thin majorities that we have in the House and the Senate right now, we're also key to making sure we get things done and get legislation passed. Because in the end, I think the most important thing when I talk to folks throughout my district, which is a purple district, is that folks want to see governance work again. I'd say that's a nonpartisan statement. Um, I think, but in Washington, D.C., things are extremely gridlocked right now. And I think we have a huge opportunity to make a difference. And New Dems play a key role. We're working closely with the Biden-Harris administration um, and with our colleagues um, in the Senate, as well as our colleagues in the House to get things done. And I think we've started on a good path by getting the American Rescue Plan across the finish line. Absolutely. Yeah, when you talk about getting things done, that is a hallmark achievement. You know, I I ask about Biden in this context specifically because, you know, as a senator, Biden considered himself a moderate, but as president, he has shifted quite a bit to the left. And I'm wondering, do you see that informing any of your policy positions? I think um, the... The key for us is to make sure that we are listening. Um, I think that's kind of our key role as representatives is to listen. And I feel like um, the great opportunity that I have given the makeup of my district is to hear many differing points of view. And you don't always, your mind may not be changed or you may not change minds, but I think you're a better legislator when you hear differing points of view and take those into account when you're trying to move legislation, understanding the impact of a particular piece of legislation on a rural area versus an urban area. Um, All of those things uh, I think are incredibly important. And I think really that's what um, our focus has been. And I do think that that's the focus of, of the administration. The president said he is the president for all Americans. And I think that's what's so important. We look at government, we've got to um, realize that 
we are representing our entire communities and um, putting policies in place that can make a difference. But if nothing happens, um, we're not making progress, then, um, then governance isn't working. And I think that's the, the opportunity and the challenge that we have right now. And so let's talk about some of those opportunities, uh, because as I mentioned, the new Dems have a four-point plan for the first 100 days. And I'll just go through those very quickly. Number one is to end the pandemic and get people back to work. Number two is to modernize our infrastructure, combat climate change, and create jobs. Number three is to protect and expand Americans' health care. Number four is restore American global leadership. So we'll start with the first one, ending the pandemic and getting people back to work. So just kind of taking a 30,000 foot view here. Uh, on one hand, Biden is on track to double his vaccination goals, uh, but we may also now be looking at a fourth wave. It's really kind of unclear, but the, the signs are murky. I'll just ask you, how do you assess the federal response under Biden just thus far? Um, I think the president and the administration have really stepped up to the plate understanding that we have to in the public health response make sure that we look at things like science and data um, and listen to public health experts as we respond um, working to make sure that we get vaccine distribution out across the country something that was extremely challenging under the trump administration um, even talking about science was challenging. Yeah. Um, so I do think that the um, picking up in a place where there hadn't been that infrastructure in place and getting in a place so quickly, um, getting resources out to our communities and the leadership that um, they've shown. Um, and I think that Congress has shown in getting the American Rescue Plan um, through and resources to our communities have made a huge difference. So getting shots in arms, clearly critical, um, making sure that we're getting resources to people to help them um, through this crisis, money in their pockets, um, helping make sure that we get kids back to school and people um, back to work. All of that is critically dependent on a strong public health response. And so um, working hard, that's a top focus, um, but we've got to, we've got to do everything we can as well to maintain mask wearing and social distancing to make sure that the virus doesn't continue to spread because as we've seen, we've seen um, growth in cases in, uh, in many parts of the country. And we also want to prevent the uh, any type of new variants to, that would develop. So we all have to do everything we can to help our community and um, make sure you get vaccinated whenever you can. On that very note, um, here in the state, I know that you just visited some vaccination sites, um, and we know that public health officials are saying that we need 70% of residents, 70 to 80% of residents, to get uh, vaccinated in order to achieve what's called herd immunity. But we also know that a large number of Washingtonians are saying that they simply will not get the vaccine. Uh, how concerned are you about this? Well, first, um, there are a lot of folks who want to get the vaccine who have yet to be vaccinated. And so we've got to continue to do everything we can to get shots in arms as quickly as possible. Um, through many different modes, you talked about the um, vaccination site. I was recently in Monroe at the Evergreen State Fairgrounds where they have drive-through vaccination that um, is going well and is so important to help serve Southeastern Snohomish County. We have, I was at Microsoft, which set up a mass vaccination site on campus and is doing work to help um, with working with community-based organizations and the county to bring people in to help them get vaccinated. And that's in partnership with uh, medical providers like 
um, like folks at Overlake and Evergreen. So there's just been this great collaboration. Um, also, incredible work from um, our first responders, our firefighters, and others who um, public health who are coming together to do mobile vaccinations to get to folks who may not be able to get to a site or to a local pharmacy, um, to um, to to smaller group homes and places where it's hard for folks to have access. And so there's this multi-pronged effort going on, which is important because our rural areas have different needs. Um, some people aren't able to, um, to have transportation available or to, to get around. Um, so I think people are really looking holistically at making sure that we have an equitable response, also very important. But I have heard um, from, from talking to all those folks about where there might be hesitancy Sometimes someone doesn't want to get a shot if their other family members aren't able to go. I think as the, the phases um, go away and we see that um, everyone will be eligible, that um, hopefully then people can go in groups and it takes away that barrier that some might have. Um, we also just need to make sure that people are getting accurate information um, in multiple languages so it's available to all members of our community. So that continues to be um, something that I think we all collectively have to do so people have accurate information um, available. So it's working hard in the American Rescue Plan to help provide those resources to help make sure not only continue with vaccine development and distribution, but to help support our local communities who are doing this effort to get shots out. Well, once again, you're anticipating my next question, which is about the, the rescue plan. Uh, and this is the second point of the new Dems priorities. This is modernize our infrastructure, combat climate change and create jobs. Uh, so let's talk about Biden's $2.3 trillion American jobs plan. And I know you've been working very closely with the White House on this. And uh, I very much want to talk about the child tax credit, which you have been absolutely instrumental in. But first, you know, just because we were just talking about the, the, the situation on the ground here in Washington, what are some of the things in the infrastructure package that will specifically benefit us here at home in Washington that you've seen? Well, um, so the American Rescue Plan is what we just passed um, that has resources to help our community, housing assistance, the Enhanced Child Tax Credit, which um, I'll bring up if you don't. Um, oh, I know. We're, we're going to get into an in-depth <laughs> conversation um, about that for sure. And uh, um, nutrition assistance, you know, direct payments, paycheck protection, helping small business, helping restaurants. So that legislation has passed and is, um, and those resources are out in our communities or getting out to our communities. But then there's the American Jobs Plan, which the president announced. Um, that's what we are working on right now. Um, and I'd say all elements of the infrastructure plan are, are critically important to our region. Um, we can start with surface transportation. I think there are many projects. I think everyone, no matter where you are in our community, can think of projects that, um, that are behind, that we're behind in terms of maintaining our infrastructure, surface transportation infrastructure. Um, folks talk about the West Seattle Bridge. I would talk about the trestle on Highway 2, um, which has been a, a long-term need in our community. But there are many, many projects that um, are community projects that you may know because they're in your community that may, others may not know that where we're behind. And so this investment um, that the president proposes really is about repairing roads and bridges, 
but also making sure we're looking at this, the infrastructure we need to build going forward, electrification, making sure they're charging stations as we see um, more electric vehicles coming out. Thinking of infrastructure broadly, things like our water infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, um, affordable housing and broadband. I mean, we're here we are, um, look, you know, all having this conversation using technology, but we have to remember there's so many members in our community who couldn't do this from their home. Um, I represent one of the biggest technology hubs on the globe in one part of my district. Another part doesn't have um, rural broadband or even good cell service right here in our region. And so, um, so when we talk about infrastructure, it's kids can't learn, um, there's not economic opportunity if we don't look at those issues. And so absolutely that is a critical part of infrastructure um, and, and something very critical to us, the, the, um, and obviously water and, um, and energy infrastructure also critical right here in our communities. So um, we're an innovative region. The president has talked a lot too about the investments in research and development, manufacturing, workforce training, we're a hub of, of innovation, but we also need to make sure that um, the, there are investments in place to make sure that that can continue and basic research. Investments in re basic research are why we have a vaccine that, um, that folks are able to get now as quickly as, yep. uh, as available as quickly as it was. So again, huge impact in our region. And then he also talked about the care economy um, and another key part of the care economy, um, long-term care and an important workforce that's critical. So these are all key to the well-being of our communities, but also to us, our ability to build back better. Um, so all of that I'd say is key across the country, but definitely key for all of us right here in Washington State. And I had a chance to meet with Secretary Buttigieg um, earlier this week to talk about priorities um, it's specific in his um, in his area around things like electric vehicles, high-speed rail, um, building the infrastructure of the future um, to really help support our community. So I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us to get legislation, um, the, the, all the details behind the legislation, but um, I think that this is something in our communities that is strongly bipartisan. Um, we've been talking about infrastructure and even broadly for a long time. I thank you for taking the time and care to really unpack all of that because it, the, the bill does so much, or the proposal rather does so much. It proposes to do an awful lot. Um, and I want to just talk about the politics of it just a little bit. This is going to need to have to happen through reconciliation. We know that. Um, and certain things that are not deemed budget related may not be able to get through. Um, and, and I'm wondering, are there particular priorities that you and the new Democrats are concerned might not make it through this process? Well, I think we're right now at the beginning of the process and, you know, the president really put out a, a, an outline of what he'd like to see accomplished. And you're going to see committees across the House of Representatives working hard on the detail behind um, behind not only these proposals, but also ideas that members of Congress have that they want to bring to the table. Um, so I think the key thing is that um, if I look at it from a New Dem perspective, 
we want to see governance work. We know that we can't make a difference and do all the things that I just talked about if we're not able to pass legislation, get it through the House and the Senate, um, get it to the president's desk. So, uh, so I think those details matter in terms of how programs work, um, making sure that they can be uh, effective um, on the ground and, and effective in our communities. Uh, so that detail is gonna be key. Then you have what you brought up, which is the higher level process of um, how legislation will move. The American Rescue Plan, the bill that did pass recently was highly bipartisan in our communities, strong public support but not in Congress. Right. Um, so again, as we look at the American Jobs Plan, I think there's strong bipartisan support for the public to make sure we're making these important investments, transformative investments in our infrastructure, our broad infrastructure. Um, and so we need to continue to make sure that that case is being made. So my colleagues on the other side of the aisle um, feel that important responsibility to, to help move legislation too. But we need to use whatever tools we have available to help make a difference in the country. And that's where tools like reconciliation are important to have available. You are one of the most powerful Democrats in Washington right now. And I'm wondering, just looking at the challenges ahead of passing this, how you see the challenge of keeping everybody on board on the Democratic side to pass this infrastructure package. The Republicans said that they no Republicans are going to vote for this. And so it really is a matter of just keeping all the Democrats together. And that means not just moderates, but also progressives. How do you look at that problem? Well, I think the, the important thing for all of us to do as we um, will be in session uh, this coming week is for us to meet in our committees and for members to make sure that they are bringing forward their ideas um, being heard. If there's one thing I think collectively across um, every member of Congress is they wanna make sure that they have an impact on legislation, that their issues are being addressed. And I think that opportunity is what is coming up as we um, head back to, uh, to really start the detailed work on this. Um, there's a lot of shaping, a lot of details. Um, some of these issues are broad issues. Some are very local and regional in terms of the impact they have on local economies that will be um, part of that. The magic number for us is 218. That's the number in the House of Representatives um, to get things through. Obviously, um, it, the, in the Senate, um, they'll be working to make sure that they can get through their thin margin, whether it's through reconciliation or, or other ways. So um, I think we understand that. But we need to talk, we need to debate issues, and that's really what the committee process is about. Um, and that will help kind of narrow things down, um, hopefully get, we'll understand if there are areas that um, are kind of the, the areas that there will need to be more focus on to make sure there's broad consensus towards the end. But I think right now we're just starting that process. It's early days, but it's good to know that you are going to be, and you and other uh, leadership members are going to be listening. Um, before we move on from infrastructure, I would like to get your thoughts on what is called the Thrive Agenda. So this, I will mention, is an indivisible legislative priority. It is a recovery 
proposal. It's not a package yet. It's a proposal. But it is a much larger scale than Biden's package, and it very much prioritizes the climate. Uh, a recent Sierra Club report showed that an investment of $1 trillion every year for 10 years would create 15 million jobs, uh, one five, 15 million jobs, and would cut climate product, uh, climate pollution in half. We know that your colleagues, uh, Jayapal and Smith, have come out on board. And I know that your personal priorities include jobs and the climate. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on the, on the Thrive Agenda? So I definitely agree with the spirit of what um, the agenda is trying to accomplish, creating more good jobs, um, um, good union jobs, investing in communities of color and communities that have been left behind, making sure that we have environmental justice. My focus, and I think our focus right now, is to move legislation. Um, and that's the opportunity we have as we look at the American Jobs Plan. This is the first time, it's my ninth year in Congress, it's the first time since I've been in Congress that we have the House, the Senate, and the White House. Um, I came in the minority in the House. Um, you know, last Congress was the first time in the majority, but with a, 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 the Trump administration and, um, and the Senate, um, there were just, it was incredibly hard to move any responsible legislation. Um, we had many bills that just sat at the door of the Senate and last Congress. So now we have this incredible opportunity. And I think, as I said earlier, challenge. So, um, so that is why, as we look at the American Jobs Plan and the president, that's one piece. There's also the American Families Plan, which the president hasn't released yet. So when we look collectively at all the things we do, we're talking about one piece of it, not the, the kind of issue, other ways that I think we address um, these common issues in terms of you know, how we invest and address disparities and address environmental justice. So I think there's more we do, but for example, the president's plan right now in the American Jobs Plan targets 40% of the benefits of climate and clean infrastructure um, to disadvantaged communities that are most affected by the climate crisis. I think those are things that are consistent with the, uh, with the Thrive Agenda. But as I kind of looked at everyone here too, I say, we have this unique opportunity. It's a two year, window right now to really make a difference for people. We need to see, um, we need to get legislation across the finish line so we can see it enacted and that change um, because that really makes the difference in people's lives on the ground. Um, so that is our top priority now, why so much focus on the jobs plan and also we'll be focused on um, the American Families Plan as it comes out soon too, um, because those are the things that need to move here, the goal of getting them done um, before the summer. Well, you know, you talk about the fact that we have a rare uh, democratic trifecta right now. I believe the last one was under Obama in 2008 uh, during his first term, his, his, his first up to the, the midterm. Um, and I think maybe the practical question that I hear on a lot of people's minds is, since the Republicans have already indicated that they are not going to vote for Biden's infrastructure package anyway, and since it has to go through reconciliation, why not use this moment for to get as much as we can on the climate crisis, especially since we don't know if we're going to get another shot at this? What would you say to that? I'd say I think we have, I think the American Rescue Plan was an important opportunity to make sure that we were moving legislation that really could be transformative for our communities in a, in a time of crisis. 
And I do think that the president's proposal is definitely transformative in terms of what he's looked at for infrastructure. And as I said, there's more coming um, with respect to uh, kind of other investments that need to be made to, to help our communities. And I do think these are transformative investments and being able to move forward, getting rid of lead pipes. It seems like something that should have happened um, so, uh, so long ago, but the fact that to put it out there and to say, we're really gonna actually do it um, to really make sure we're addressing issues of climate with things like um, investing in our infrastructure and a strong climate resilient infrastructure and just investing in electrification. So we really can take advantage um, and move forward in uh, with electric vehicles. These are all huge priorities. So I do think this is a bold agenda and we've got a lot of work to make sure that we get the details right and um, work to get legislation passed. So this will be an important piece of work. and. Like I said, it, a huge opportunity, but also a challenge. I want to talk next about something that I know is enormously important to you, and I billboarded this earlier, and that is the permanent child tax credit. This is such a, a big priority of yours, and I know you've been working with the White House on this, and it's kind of hard to overstate the importance of this, right? I mean, this could change the trajectory for a generation of American children. What if you could just briefly talk in your own words about the importance of the child tax credit? Um, absolutely. As I said, I was going to bring it up if you didn't. So, um, uh, so uh, we're all on the same page there. Um, the child tax credit, which is, a, you know, it sounds a bit geeky to begin with anything that sounds like a tax credit. It's the largest federal investment we make in our kids. Um, the, but the child tax credit, the way it existed, um, originally was, uh, or, or has since the, um, the Republican tax bill, the credit left behind many families. Um, it left behind black and Hispanic children, um, children who had single parents, um, children from families in rural areas because their parents didn't make enough money to access the full credit. A tax credit offsets your taxes, but if you don't have a tax burden, if you have no income and you don't have a tax burden, it doesn't help you at all. So the, myself and um, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro had been working for a long time on legislation to change the child tax credit, to make it refundable, number one, which means that if you're not offsetting a tax burden, then we would give you a check for that amount so that you would actually get the full benefit, um, helping some of the families who need that help the most. We increased the child tax credit. So it's $3,000 per child per year or $3,600 per child per year for children under the age of six. And, um, and our proposal is that that would be um, a monthly payment. So it could be, if it's 300,000 or if it's $3,000 for a child per year, then that would be $250 per month um, for a family. And the importance of that is that this is the number one thing we can do to lift children out of poverty in our country. That our plan to enhance the child's tax credit in the way that I just talked about was included in the American Rescue Plan. It was included in the bill that we passed, which is huge. So now we are able to um, set up the infrastructure so that we can have the child tax credit 
3,000 per year or 3,600 per year for young children that we can um, and set up the, the ability to make it refundable so families would get checks. Um, so that's what we're working on right now is the implementation of what we just passed. The challenges, it was only in the American Rescue Plan for a year. Right. So the child tax credit enhancement would be for a year and then it would go away. And we're not gonna lift children out of poverty across our country in just a year. If we make this permanent, we'll lift 4 million children out of poverty, um, 65,000 out of poverty just here in Washington state. There is tons of, I'm a data person, there's tons of data and research. Other countries have done um, similar types of policies with great success. So um, we need to make it permanent. And so it's great that we have it in the American Rescue Plan for a year, that's a starting point, but we are already working hard to try to um, make this permanent. I, I want to talk about the mechanisms of that. I mean, could it be part of the upcoming American Family Plan? And, and this is actually a really boneheaded question. You'll have to forgive me for asking. Can it pass as part of the budget? Um, so uh, the American um, Family Plan uh, seems like it should include the American Family Act, which is the name of our bill. Um, so, uh, so I think there's an opportunity there. I'm pushing hard for permanent expansion Permanent um, goes in a long window, obviously, when you look at it from a budget perspective. So um, we're gonna continue to look at how we can continue to move that forward, but I would love to see that as part of legislation that moves. Um, and it's something that we're working on in the committee that I serve on the Ways and Means Committee. But this is a huge priority because this is our chance to lift millions of children out of poverty across the country, help so many families. and an incredible investment that we make in our kids and their future opportunities. And so um, we'll get an incredible return on this investment that we make. But that's the, our work now. And um, we'll keep uh, getting people, giving people updates on how things are going. But this is, a, like I said, the success in the American Rescue Plan was great, but we have more to do. So this is a, the American Family Plan is a bill that Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut, Congressman Richie Torres, a new member from New York has joined us, um, this Congress and myself. And then in the Senate, we have Senator Sherrod Brown, Senator um, Cory Booker and Senator Michael Bennett are leading the effort in the Senate. So um, a lot of folks working hard together on this and um, such a huge priority to really make a difference in our country. Well, again, we want to say thank you for your work on this because we know how utterly transformative this can be for, for children. And it's just, it's hard to overstate the importance of that. And, you know, in that vein, I would love to get your thoughts about the $15 minimum wage and its relationship to childhood poverty. Uh, we know that the Senate parliamentarian declined to include it in the rescue package. Um, but data from the Center for American Progress shows that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would lift some 330000 children in Washington alone out of poverty. Any thoughts on how we can make this happen? Well, um, the federal minimum wage hasn't been increased since 2009. It's 725 an hour. Um, and while we have state laws that make our, um, our minimum wage much higher, um, I was born in Alabama. In Alabama, it's still 725 an hour. So it's not enough for a family to, to afford um, to have a middle-class life. Um, it wouldn't, I can't imagine if we were, had the federal minimum wage here in Washington state, 
how difficult that would be for families when $15 as a minimum wage still is hard for families in such an expensive area like our urban areas are. So um, majority of Americans wanna see an increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I think there's been um, you know, folks who've, who've done, that, done that research um, so I think I'm very supportive of this. I think there wasn't support in the Senate during the relief bill debate. We clearly, we passed the bill that we passed in the House had the minimum wage increase in there. So um, we've got to keep working hard to address this because too many communities um, uh, in, across the country don't have, uh, their states have not moved. Um, and we have many folks who are, and, and without a, regular cost of living adjustment, um, they're not even getting changes there. So this is a huge area to, like you said, to help families across the board. Um, and so the child tax credit is a huge, uh, a huge investment, but clearly making sure that people are making livable wages has to be a top priority too. Couldn't agree more. Um, I want to shift over and talk about uh, the way that Biden intends to pay for his infrastructure package, which is largely by raising taxes on the wealthy. Uh, it's going to undo a lot of the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, there is a capital gains tax. It raises the corporate rate to 28 percent. It was previously 39 percent before Trump. Uh, and then it'll also increase taxes on people making over $400,000 a year. I'll just ask you very bluntly, as vice chair of Ways and Means, do you support this approach? So we're gonna have a lot of conversations about tax policy on the Ways and Means Committee. We already have um, in many um, calls like we're doing right now, even this week. Um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Republican tax bill, uh, did pretty much took every, every opportunity, unfortunately, to make our tax policy more unfair across our country. Um, it benefited large corporations, benefited the wealthiest among us. Um, the average rate for US multinationals on profits reported here fell from 16% in 2017 to 8% in 2018. Um, and that's just one example of what we've seen from what happened because of the Republicans tax bill and Democrats voted against it. So. Clearly, as we look at tax policy going forward, and there's been more focus on the corporate side, that's part of the American, that, that the administration put out as part of the plan on the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, they haven't released that, that plan yet um, in terms of how they might address other issues. So that's um, coming, but when we, but even when we were um, talking with, uh, folks during the Republicans when they were putting together their bill, they, there was never talk about a corporate rate going to 21%. I think um, the, a lot of corporations thought 25% would be a huge win. Um, that was kind of the conversation back then and we ended up at 21%. So we absolutely need to reform um, tax policy, um, not just kind of that looking at the the basic rate, but also look at tax avoidance and loopholes. There's a lot of complexity there. You've seen companies not even pay taxes. So when we look at the overall impact, it's, you can't just focus alone on the rate because the rate alone may not address some of the other places where, um, where we lose that fairness that I was talking about, making sure that folks are paying their fair share. There's also a piece of the American Jobs Plan 
that has to do with international taxes. And this part gets extremely complicated um, because there's also a, a international conversation happening about what international taxes should look like. Um, so it's that part is also dependent on what other countries decide to do in terms of the impact that it has, which is why I said we're going to be having lots of conversations about this in committee in terms of what's the right way to make sure uh, we fix a very broken system that we focus on fairness and competitiveness and um, and innovation because we've also seen sometimes innovators can't bring new ideas to the table if they're disadvantaged versus uh, large corporations. So we've got this, um, so that's gotta be a big part of what we're looking at. And then last, the IRS has, and I'm the, I, you know, the former director of the Washington State Department of Revenue. So as someone who had to run a, a, a organization who had to implement uh, what legislators put together, um, I think it's incredibly important that we make sure we have the right resourcing for the IRS. They have been cut a lot, enforcement has fallen off, and we know that there is much additional revenue if we had enforcement. One, because that would make that would address the fairness issue to make sure that um, folks are paying what they should, um, and we know that um, disproportionately, for example, um, those who are more wealthy who have more complicated taxes um, are underpaying because if without the auditing ability capabilities in the IRS, those are the things that don't get the attention. So making sure that we invest in the IRS and in enforcement also would bring in more revenue. And so that's got to be a piece of what we're looking at too. You're just to be clear, you're not saying that you think the infrastructure package can be fully funded with just more enforcement alone. No, but I think it's a piece that isn't necessarily, um, that, that needs to be done anyway. Um, and because it, it's an issue of fairness and there are revenues that could be gained by doing that. There have been different estimates out there in terms of what it would mean. But um, so we need to do that and we need to, to address fairness. Um, so as we look at putting the laws in place, we also have to make sure those laws are being enforced. And that's why uh, another important role that the IRS plays that has been uh, underfunded for quite a long time. Yes, uh, and, and, and we hear about that, and we, we know where that began, and uh, ideally that's something that can be addressed during this administration. Um, I want to talk next about health care, because this is the third uh, plank in the New Dems' uh, priorities. This is protect and expand Americans' health care. It will not surprise you that we have gotten a number of questions about Medicare for All, and I, I actually would love to hear you just articulate your position a little bit. I don't believe that you are in favor, but we do know that... Uh, uh, Representative Jayapal just ad advanced her Medicare for All Act of 2021. We had a number of audience questions. I'll excerpt this one very briefly. Uh, this comes from a nurse. Her name is Bonnie. Lack of health care access leads to worse outcomes and complicates efforts to contain COVID-19 transmission and deaths. Provision for expansion of health care, provisions rather, for expansion of health care in the latest relief bill don't cover everyone. As a retired RN, I can say equity and health care access is even more important in this pandemic. Under what circumstances might uh, you become a co-sponsor of Jayapal's Medicare for All bill? And I, I, I will just ask you, and obviously in the interest of time, we're kind of bumping up the clock, bumping up against the clock here, but I'll just ask you, has the pandemic changed your views about uh, universal health care? And is there any aspect of the Medicare for All bill that would move you to support? Do you see any, any sort of negotiation room there? Well, first of all, I think we all believe that there has to be 
affordable, quality healthcare for everyone in our country, period. Um, so the question is, how do we get there? And the, the Affordable Care Act helped 20 million Americans get access to healthcare coverage. Absolutely was not perfect. Um, and that's why we need to continue to build on that. But the way we are going to really have an impact in addressing that goal is by being able to move legislation to help to help make sure we're making that difference. And that's why I've been a strong supporter of a public option, because I think if we give people choice um, and that public option could look could be uh, related to Medicare, could be uh, could be something else. The importance there is that people have that choice. And I think if people decide that they want um, that public plan, we're going to see a lot of people go there and that will continue to um, really shape policy going forward. The choice, I think, is what's important for folks because that's been the, the challenge um, for folks who do have coverage today, et cetera. Um, there's been, you know, this has become such a political argument. So the question is, how do we best move forward to make sure that we have quality, affordable coverage for everyone? And I think the best way we achieve that is through a public option. And if we end up that people prefer that public option going forward, then I think you're going to see that be a bigger and bigger part of our healthcare system. Obviously, this would necessitate uh, an entire uh, town hall in and of itself. So I, I will, I will <laughs> just say, I mean, it really, there's there's so much to it. Um, and I will just say that, uh, you know, we're, tr we're going to try to get to audience questions as soon as possible. And so I'm going to ask you about uh, a few of a few pieces of legislation that the new Dems have backed that align with Indivisible's legislative priorities to get your thoughts on them. Uh, the first is S1, uh, HR1, the For the People Act. This is one of Indivisible's top priorities. Um, and I know that you see the threat of the many voter suppression laws that have passed the GOP-run houses uh, in this last year. S1 is going to require getting rid of the filibuster, and we know you're not in the Senate, but a number of influential House members have been expressing their opinions, uh, and I'll, I'll ask you, do you support getting rid of the filibuster? So first, let me just say on H.R. 1, um, and uh, as I was saying, we kind of reserve those, the numbers of our bills, those first nine numbers for most important legislation. So there's a reason it's H.R. 1. I'll say H.R. because I'm on the House side, so I guess uh, <laughs> I'll say H.R. 1 versus S1, but um, H.R. 1. Uh, for the People Act is really the, fundamentally about um, protecting our democracy and people's right to vote. I was born in Selma, Alabama, right over on the side over here is John Lewis looking at a picture of John Lewis in Selma. Um, and it just inspires me every day to um, remember what folks fought for and how critically important it is that we stand up for democracy. Um, and this is a critically important piece of legislation to doing that. Um, the filibuster traditionally stood in the way of civil rights legislation and progress in many areas. I think clearly the Senate, um, there's nothing that says the filibuster has to be there, but I do think at the very least we could um, make an exemption for civil rights legislation, things like HR1 um, and or, or bills like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, which is HR4, um, so that they do not have to be subject to the filibuster. Um, there have been exceptions that have been made. And um, I think with, with respect to civil rights, I think you can make a strong case and I would support that um, so that we can see bills like HR1 or HR4 move. 
I want to just be very clear. Um, are, are you saying that you'd be in favor of ending the filibuster for anything democracy related, or is it more targeted than that? Well, I think um, generally we, you know, the conversation, there has been a conversation about civil rights legislation. So um, civil rights legislation, we could define that in a variety of ways, but because um, that's kind of why the filibuster um, part of its origins were um, to make it hard to move on civil rights legislation. So I think it um, would be appropriate to, to make sure we made a clear exception there. We want to thank you for supporting D.C. statehood. Um, and I also want to ask you about court reform, which is another priority of, of Indivisibles. Uh, the president just announced, this was yesterday, this was, uh, I think this caught a lot of people, myself included, by surprise, that he is commissioning a study on expanding the Supreme Court. Uh, I wonder if I could just uh, very briefly get the New Dems position on this, if you have one at this point. As a coalition, we have not, there's not a formal New Dem position. I think um, there, you know, obviously is great concern that we all have about the court becoming more political and has definitely accelerated. Um, and I'd say more broadly than just the Supreme Court, more broadly um, under the Trump administration. Um, so President Biden announced his commission to look at, which is really, I think a lot of scholars and constitutional um, judicial experts and so I think they're going to bring forward their ideas on what they think um, might need to be done. Um, there is, folks have talked about expanding the court, but then you can imagine other folks um, using that in a different way to expand. So how would that look? Um, folks have also brought up issues of whether or not should, there should be a limit for a term. So there's more, uh, you know, of a regular turnover and what that would look like. So. Um, I expect that those are going to be the things and I look forward to hear what they have to say, um, that what the commission has to say and what they propose. I think we're all going to be uh, looking for that as well. Um, just a couple quick things and then we'll get into the audience questions. Um, you likely have been following what has been happening with our legislature here in the state on the front of uh, police reform. Uh, a lot of really substantial and tremendous bills have passed. I'm wondering, what do you think can be done uh, in terms of justice and policing at the federal level? Well, we could pass the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act. Um, we did in, in the House, and um, this is, uh, and we passed it again. I should say we passed it again in the House. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's an issue that we have to address at all levels of government, and frankly, an issue that we have to address throughout our community. So the federal response is one piece of that response. And I think we all play a role in that to, um, to speaking out and to standing up um, when we see something, um, I'll quote John Lewis, that is not right or fair or just, um, we have a moral obligation to do something about it. Yeah. From a legislative standpoint, um, one piece is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Um, that, now it will depend on the Senate in terms of whether or not their support to move that. But I think that that is a is one critical piece at the federal level that we can pass to help make a difference. And then the state and local local governments as well um, in terms of what happens with local policing. But like I said, we all have a, our own responsibilities too to make sure we address systemic racism throughout the country. 
Absolutely right. Um, time to get into audience questions now. And this first one is about small businesses. It comes from Parminder. He asks, uh, how is the government planning to save small businesses? Uh, employment security department rates are high. Landlords, and he says at the Bellis Fair Mall, are forcing full rent. What can be done for small business owners right now? It seems like we're in a little bit of a liminal time between the the, the rescue package and, and, and where people are sort of netting out in terms of, of what they've been receiving to help them. So um, I recently, um, actually earlier this week, did a Facebook town hall with folks on the resources that are available as a result of the American Rescue Plan for small businesses. Um, and just want that, to, that's a resource, but also up on my website at delbene.house.gov, we put up resource guides for COVID. Um, so there's a COVID-19 tab on my website. and there's a resource guide and there is a research guide specifically for small businesses that go through all of the different programs um, and uh, um, that are available for small businesses. So just one, just want to highlight that because we won't have time to go through sure. everything that's available, but just have time and folks can always reach out to our office if they have question on that. But clearly the pandemic has been really devastating for small businesses. Um, you know, 400,000 small businesses have closed their doors. Um, we've got millions hanging by a thread and with the uncertainty that we still have in terms of when they can still um, reopen. Um, so we wanted the America, it was a big focus of the American Rescue Plan and frankly of the CARES Act and some of the work that we did last year to get grants and loans. Um, one thing that I worked hard on was the employee retention tax credit. I guess I'm, I'm smiling because you're, you're getting the tax credit theme, but um, the employee retention tax credit to help um, small businesses cover payroll so they could keep people in their jobs and connected to their benefits um, during the pandemic. Um, we extended that and that was extended again um, through the end of the year in the American Rescue Plan. We have the Paycheck Protection Program. We have a new grant program to support restaurants and other food and drinking establishments, um, $28 billion. That's part of the American Rescue Plan that we just past because we know um, the incredible impact that was there. Also um, for small venues uh, that, for example, music venues, places like that, um, resources there. Also because of uh, the types of businesses that were uh, disproportionately impacted. So um, all, the, all of those plus resources that we've given to state and local government and that they've used to help support local businesses in different ways um, so that there's flexibility there is all part of that. Um, so I know it is an incredibly trying time. And if there's more specific questions, please, like I said, let us know um, or, um, or look for that resource guide on, on our website. And you can look for that resource guide uh, in the show notes uh, at indivisiblepodcast.org. And where, when we post this up on social media, that should be there as well. Uh, we had a question about, well, we had a question about guns that I think I'm going to uh, ask you about first here. Um, in the light of uh, the recent mass shootings in Colorado, Texas, and elsewhere, some GOP senators are suddenly saying they might be open to changes on gun reform. Do you feel anything can be done? And I, I would ask you, you know, you, you're aware of the numbers on this. Of course, the vast majority of Americans support meaningful gun reform. Um, the intransigence comes from our elected officials. I know that you passed uh, legislation on background checks and what's called the Charleston loophole. Um, what do you see from your perch in the House as, as any potential Senate action on this? 
Well, the, um, I mean, you said it right there. This is, uh, this is a public health crisis in our country. Um, we've seen locally in our region all the way through to what we saw happen um, more recently across the country, um, 18 Americans killed in less than a week apart um, for those two shootings. It, so this is a public health crisis. And, um, and so the two bills that we passed in the House, the bipartisan background checks and the enhanced background checks, like you said, to um, strengthen background checks and address the Charleston loophole, um, those are, have strong bipartisan support. And the disconnect, again, between the what the public feels on an issue and what we see in Congress, that disconnect is where I think um, people in community have a strong, strong voice. They have a strong voice to, to ask their legislators where they stand on this and to um, ask why they are blocking important legislation from moving. And we're talking about very common sense reform, making sure a background tech system in place actually works. Um, now the president also has taken action um, to, um, with respect to ghost guns. Um, we need we need we need responsible governance, and so um, we see that at different levels of government. This is one, though, I think it's critically important for the federal government to act. Um, but so we need communities to continue to speak out. I know many of you have and and regularly do, because um, this can't be the status quo. We have an opportunity to make a huge difference. The public is there, and we're going to keep pushing however we can to move legislation um, in Washington, D.C. Two more questions, and then we will let you go. Uh, John Pincus asks, and this has to do with privacy, and this is an area uh, that, that he studies very deeply. Um, he says, have you been tracking the battle over privacy legislation here in Washington state? Indivisible groups have really been leaning in on this, and I know you've also spoken of the importance of opt-in and privacy by default. So, um Great question, and this could be, a, we could do a whole town hall on privacy, would too. Would you? Um, Actually, we were going to ask, um, if we can't get to this in the allotted amount of time, we would love to have you come back. Happy to, to, happy to talk about privacy um, another time, too. Wonderful. But um, I will say at a high level, um, I believe we should have federal data privacy legislation, because I think you're, you're, that consumers should be protected everywhere in our country. Um, clearly, Washington state is trying to move legislation, but I think a patchwork of state laws means that people don't know what their rights are from one place to another. Um, Virginia just passed a law. California has a law. They're different. Um, so I do think it's important to have federal law. I put a bill out there um, because I think we're beyond the concept phase. We've got to start putting pen to paper and talking about what a real bill would look like. And so this is an issue I've personally been pushing on because I think we're incredibly behind. And the last thing I'll throw in there, because we may not have time to talk about it more detail now, is this is also an international issue. In the absence of us having a domestic policy, we aren't sitting at the international table talking about what global policy should look like. The European Union passed legislation, GDPR, um, on data privacy. And if we're going to talk about what we think represent our values and what we think sh um, policy should look like at the global level, then we really need to decide what uh, federal um, policy looks like right here in the United States. So yeah. incredibly important and um, happy to talk more at another time.
Wonderful. Thank you so much about that. And one final question, and this comes from Taylor. I was actually very moved by his question uh, for what are probably personal reasons, but he wants to know how you're helping gig workers make it through this pandemic without having to pivot careers entirely. He says, I've spent my entire adult life as a live events technician building musicals at the Village Theater in Issaquah, building Microsoft Ready and Ignite in monumental convention halls. I've been a proud card-carrying member of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. That's IATSE, his brother, uh, in uh, in unions, I'm SAG-AFTRA. Uh, and, but he's had to become a gig worker for years now, and this is the first time that he's looked at his career and his future with legitimate dread. How can you help hundreds and thousands of gig workers around the state get better benefits and easier access to union representation uh, to bolster their wages and protections? And then he says, how can I help? So um, thank you for saying that, and, um, and thanks for the question, because... Um, this is a huge issue and to the point that I made uh, when I talk about the new Dem coalition and being forward looking, this is in place we're incredibly behind. Um, the way people work has changed, but our policies to support them haven't. Um, and so this is, I've been very involved in, in portable benefits legislation, working with folks in labor and others so that we have um, portable benefits that go with the worker. Um, and so there continues to be work there and there's been work, um, some good work here in Washington state. We, that's why we had to stand up pandemic unemployment benefits um, in the CARES Act because we wanted to make sure there were unemployment benefits available to gig workers who may not have had them. And one of the things that I think is also important is that we capture the work that happened uh, there um, and don't lose that so that we can continue to move forward um, since we had to, um, and states like our state tried to, um, tried to stand up um, these systems. Um, I hope that we you know, keep that learning going forward, but we're working on um, ongoing legislation with respect to portable benefits for all the reasons that you brought up. And, um, and we need to support um, people's right to organize and continue to do that. We passed legislation in the house um, and we'll continue to make sure that we have that support um, across the board to continue to fight. But, but like I said, when we talked about portable benefits, we've been working with um, folks in labor on that too. Well, I'm going to forward along that email along with uh, Taylor's information to your office because, as he says, he is willing to help. But we want to say thank you uh, so much for taking the time. And also, um, we really would love to have you come back and talk about privacy issues. We also talked about health care. These are protracted discussions. We know that these are very, very important to you. So uh, down the line, if we could have you come back, it would be absolutely wonderful. But for now, we will let you get back to your – I see the sun has come out here in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Hopefully for everybody. I was going to say – I was put in mind this morning of a, a force uh, that's a, a song by Crowded House called Four Seasons in One Day. So we had snow and then rain and hail. And now it's sun. So there we go. We've nailed them all. Uh, Congresswoman Del Benny, it is an absolute delight to see you again. Uh, thank you so much for all you do. Thank you. And please, everyone, stay safe, stay healthy. And um, thanks for letting me share some time with you today. Take care. And that is it for this week's show. Thank you again to Congresswoman Susan Del Bene. Thanks also to Nick Martin, Chantel Thurman, Jennifer Ho, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is distributed through the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.